everyone and welcome to episode 552 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I've been busy working with the wonderful author, Kate Forsyth, on her new course, Plotting and Planning. Kate, of course, is the internationally best-selling author of novels like The Crimson Thread, The Blue Rose, Beauty in Thorns, and she's created this incredible course so that you can learn at your own pace. And she is just a master at storytelling and such an experienced author. She's written over 50 books. So this course is ideal for fiction writers who want to look We'll want to learn a bit more about structure and discover things like um, the basic formula for all stories, an intuitive approach versus the analytical approach to your writing, see which works for you, the seven basic plots that you need to know, and of course, how to keep your reader glued to your plot. I mean, the course is called Plotting and Planning, so it's all about how to really make your story work on a technical level. It's going to be launched very soon, so it will be this month. So what I want you to do is register your interest. Why? Because when it's launched, only the people who have registered their interest will receive a very special, never-to-be-repeated special offer, and that special low price will only be available during this period. Well, it will never actually be that low again. So do register your interest at writercenter.com.au slash plotting. That's writercenter.com.au slash plotting. Now let's move on to my writing tip this week. If you're struggling to find time to write, then have a think about giving the Pomodoro technique a go. You may have used it for work, but it's also great for creative projects too. The way it works is that you set a timer. It could be 25 minutes or 45 minutes or maybe 15, even 15 minutes if that's all you have. I, I like to do 25 minutes, um, but sometimes I'll do 50 minutes. Anyway, you set the timer and you turn off all other distractions and you just write until the timer ends. So no looking up facts, no going down rabbit holes, no editing, just writing. No looking at your phone, no checking your email. You can do anything you like after the timer ends, but during that block of time, you're just focused on one thing only. And you know what? It doesn't matter if you only write 50 words or 100. If you get into a frenzy and bash out 500 words, um, you know, when you reread them later, you hate them. It doesn't matter. What's important is that you spend that time with your story. And if you're really struggling for time, start small. Start with five minutes. Gradually work your way up to longer chunks of time. I mean, ideally, you want to get into a habit like 25 minutes on and then five minutes off where you can, you know, check your phone or or (laughs) look up social media or whatever. And then again, 25 minutes on and then five minutes off. But if Okay, if you can only manage five minutes, that's still an achievement. I really really love this method. I've created my own playlists as well. Um, My cat has created playlists. You can check them out on YouTube at Productive Rocky. So that's my cat Rocky. And basically he has 
um, uh, a video that's like a two-hour video. It's in real time. Yes, it's it's just him. So you can just have that on in the background. But there is some chill and lo-fi music where it's 25 there's, – there's a timer. I've put a 25-minute timer on where there's music and then five-minute nature sounds where you can go have a nature stop or go walk in the garden or whatever. Then 25 minutes music, the timer – it counts you down and then five minutes off where you can make your cup of tea and that goes for two hours and I ha- I use it a lot you know I made it for myself but I'm sharing it for anyone who wants to use it but it, I find it works very very effectively for me most of the views are from me because I made it for myself but I've heard from other people that they have they find it useful as well it's not monetized or anything just sharing the love okay Let's move on to our competition this week. Oh, this is great. I have three copies of After She Wrote Him by Solari Gentle to give away. Creating realistic characters is one of the fundamentals of writing, but what if the characters actually come alive? Solari Gentle's novel After She Wrote Him will make you question truth and fiction, and I have three copies to give away to you. Here's the blurb. Madeleine de Leon doesn't know where Edward came from. He is simply a character in her next book. But as she writes, he becomes all she can think about. His charm, his dark hair, his pen scratching out his latest literary novel. Edward McGinnity can't get Madeleine out of his mind. Softly smiling, infectiously enthusiastic and perfectly damaged. She will be the ideal heroine for his next book. But who is the author and who is the creation? And as the lines start to blur, who is affected when a killer finally takes flesh? Ooh, okay. I mean, Solari is just a master at these things. Her last book was absolutely fantastic, The Woman in the Library. And I have no doubt this one is going to be amazing as well. Entries close 14th of August. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. It's very easy to enter and you just go to that URL and follow the prompts and you could win one of three copies of After She Wrote Him. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because I'm here to tell it to you. The word of the week is abiritate. Abiritate. A-B-I-R-R-I-T-A-T-E, abiritate. What's it mean? Well, it's a verb and you might have guessed it, but its meaning is to make less irritable. So I think spending time with my Rocky definitely works to abiritate me. There you go. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. 
With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. Before we move on to my interview this week, just a quick trigger warning that we touch on topics such as child abuse and drug use. We don't discuss any graphic details and we focus on the writing process, but I just wanted to let you know. Today, I'm talking to David Ma, who was the editor of the Australian newspaper's monthly luxury lifestyle magazine, Wish, for 15 years. He's also been a senior writer for the Australian Financial Review magazine and has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire and the Sydney Star Observer. His books include Fashion Speak, Interviews with the World's Leading Designers and The A to Z of Modern Manners. His latest book is very, very different. It's a memoir called Secrets and Lies, A Story of Justice, Perseverance, and the Life that Comes After. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you for having me. This book, oh my God. Okay. Secrets and Lies, A Story of Justice, Perseverance, and the Life that Comes After. I was profoundly moved and affected by this book. And it was, um, so I want to say congratulations on such an incredibly well-written, beautifully written story. And not congratulations, but thank you for writing this story because I learned so much and I thought it was a very important read. For those people who haven't got a copy of the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Okay, well, um, it's a... It's a story about child sexual abuse, which is might be why you're hesitant to say congratulations or whatever. And it's funny because some other people who, who have read the book have wanted to tell me that they enjoyed reading it, but didn't think enjoyed was the right kind of word. Um, it's a story about child sexual, sexual abuse, um, uh, an historic case. I'm one of the victims in that case. Um, uh, it's also about a two-year effort to bring the perpetrator in our case to justice, a successful two-year effort, um, which is kind of what precipitated the writing of the book in the first place. I think when I first decided to go ahead with this, with the criminal charges and so on, I thought there were, a part of me was thinking I might get a book out of it, um, which wasn't the main reason for doing it. But, um, and it's also really, it's about the sort of the justice journey, but it's also really about my experience, I suppose, uh, about what happened to me when I was a teenager at school and what has happened to me in the decades since. So to give give people some context, you are a journalist, but you're a journalist who is not on the crime beat. Um, You write about very, very different things. Can you tell people what you your normal um, wheelhouse is. Yeah. Um, So I've been a journalist for about 25 years. Um, I've spent all of that time in newspapers. 
but I've been at the magazine end of newspapers. Um, and specifically for the last 15 years, I was, um, I edited a magazine called Wish Magazine, which was a monthly magazine that went into the Australian newspaper. And it was a luxury lifestyle magazine. So, you know, my kind of expertise is in fashion, design, architecture. Um, I was the editor of that magazine. So I was also across things like food and travel and so on. So it was all kind of, you know, we used to sort of describe it as the fun end of the paper. Um, it was very much about lifestyle and about sort of how to spend your money, I suppose. Um, so no, I haven't been a crime journalist. Um, it was all a bit sort of new to me. I, I didn't really know how to approach a story like this, even though it was my experience. I wasn't quite sure as a journalist what was the best way into the story or how I should behave in court or anything like that. Um, so no, it wasn't my area of expertise, but it was, you know, like removing myself from the story. It was also, uh, it was a challenge that I kind of wanted to do. So I sort of saw it as a, as a, as a justice sort of journey, but also I, I wanted to do something a little bit different, partially just to see if I could. Yes, because when I heard that David Marr was writing this book, I was like, what? Because... I mean, Wish Magazine, when that came out, I mean, it was my favourite magazine for such a long time and I thought you had the dream job of, of the planet. Um, and and I, I just did. loved Yeah, yeah, you did. And I just loved that magazine. And as you say, it it is about, it's very aspirational. I mean, it's called Wish and it is about watches and luxury travel and you know, handbags and, you know, experiences. It's, it's it's style, architecture, design, food, as you say. So this is so different. But you have written books before, but they are in the same, they were in the same kind of space. They were about etiquette, um, interviews with uh, designers. This is so different. Mm. What did you have to do to just get out, to change gears in terms of what you were writing about? Well, in a way, um, the changing gears was actually quite good because, you know, when your job is cars and watches and fashion and so on, you know, you, you know, you work long hours, you work all day sort of with your head in that kind of space. Um, you don't want to do that when you come home or you don't want to do that on weekends or on your holidays. So it was easy for me to change gears because I would sort of get to a weekend and I was actually looking forward to writing this book because it was just different to what I did in my day job. Um, so it, it, that part of it, I sort of quite enjoyed. I also, you know, in a funny kind of way, for a couple of different reasons, COVID-19 was a really good thing for me um, in our court case, but also in the writing of this book. In my normal day job, I used to travel quite a lot. I mean, my record um, is I did 13 international trips in one year. That's excessive. But I think, you know, normally it would be sort of eight to 10. So I was away a lot. Um, and, you know, as much as you might think, oh, it'd be great to just sit on a plane and write a book, you never feel like doing that. And you don't, you know, you don't have access to research and all that kind of thing. So it kept me at home. Um, it meant sort of socialising was curtailed. So it was a really easy thing for me to, I didn't have to say to my friends, oh, I can't make up, meet up on the weekend because, you know, I'm sitting at home writing a book because I wasn't, I couldn't meet up on a lot of weekends anyway. So it was kind of, um, it gave me a distraction at that time when everybody was looking for distractions while everybody was doing jigsaw puzzles and learning different crafts and so on. I was writing a book. 
But in, in addition to the practical aspect, okay, <laughs> that you had the, the time and the environment to write the book, the thing is when you're writing uh, books about etiquette or, or or style or whatever, you you know, you have to do a bunch of research and there's a passage that you wrote in this book. I learned early in my career that a good reporter shouldn't insert themselves into the story. In the first week of my first job at a major newspaper, an editor handed me back a story I'd written and asked, are you famous? Um, no, I don't think so, I said. Then why would anyone care what you think? Take all the I out of it. But this book, you have to go I a lot and you have to, it's not just research, you have to uh, tap into your memory. You have to have a lot of self-reflection what was that like after having decades not doing that? Well, yeah, I mean, it was very unnatural for me. I think newspaper journalism and magazine journalism has changed a little bit and that writers do insert themselves into the story and do write about, you know, how they, not just their opinions, but about their experience of something. I was sort of brought up in newspapers that that was a bad thing and that only super famous people could write like that because they had earned the right to be able to write about themselves or what they thought and that readers would be interested. Um, and I guess when that's your sort of professional life, you get very used to that's just what writing is. It's not about me. It's about other people's voices. And I just kind of bring it all together. Um, and I did, you know, in the very early stages of writing the book, I really struggled with that because, you know, I would look at, I would get a paragraph written and think, oh my God, it's just me, 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 you know? Um, and it took me a long time to realise that, well, in a way that's what memoir is. I mean, it is about a person and is written from the person's perspective. Um, and once I got into that and once I sort of got over my sort of hesitation about that or my unease with it, I, I it, it was much easier. It was just that sort of beginning thing where I just thought, I was doing the wrong thing or I, I was writing something that no one would want to read because I'd sort of had that drummed into me for years and years that, you know, no one cares what you think, tell people what other people think. So you have a couple of journeys here. It was the journey about bringing your perpetra the perpetrator who you refer to as DT to justice, but there was the journey in writing the book. What At what point did you think, I'm going to write a book? And was that an idea that popped into your head or did someone put the idea there, suggest it to you? Well, you know, so the, the kind of history of the story is in 2018, um, a, a guy I went to school with, I went to an all-boys school, contacted me um, and wanted to meet up. Um, and we, um, we had been victims of the same perpetrator and we had discussed this about 20 years ago. And um, he told me in the middle of 2018 that he was going to go to the police, that he... Um, was going to bring this guy to justice and send him to jail. That was his words. And did I want to join him? And I took about six months to say yes. Um, he started on, down the process uh, much sooner than I did. I was sort of a late entrant, I suppose. And um, I, for various reasons, I hesitated. And at that time, it had been a while since I had written a book and I wanted to do a project. And I kept coming up with ideas that were more in my line with my day job. And none of them really excited me enough to be able to give up a year or two of my life to do them. And one day I just thought, maybe there's a book in this, you know, maybe I can just kind of go through this process um, as a journalist at, 
also as a complainant in the case. And what I found very early on was it helped to remove me from the story a bit because I would sit there and I would take notes with all the meetings that we had with the police and detectives and in court and so on. Um, so I kind of was able to approach it like a journalist and I didn't really get to, I mean, obviously I did get caught up in the emotions of it all, but I was sort of one step removed as well, which um, wasn't really my t intention at the beginning, but it, it very quickly I learned, okay, this is actually a good way to approach this. Obviously the other person that was involved in my case, his name's Paul and he's mentioned in the book. Um, he isn't a journalist and he didn't do that. And I think um, he found it very difficult to sit in court um, and to go through all those meetings. Whereas I kind of sat there. I mean, if you could see my notes from those days in court, I wrote down everything. I don't know why I wrote down everything, but I just thought if I keep taking notes, I'm not really part of this. I'm an observer like a journalist. And so I just sort of um, buried myself into that. And I mean, obviously in writing a book, you know, the book would have only been interesting as a book, depending on how the court case ended. Um, so I told I told the detective in our case that I was planning on writing a book and I told our lawyer that I was planning on doing that. And um, I didn't really talk to anybody in terms of a publisher or anybody like that until everything was done, until the absolutely, the court case was completely resolved because I didn't really know how it was going to end. And if it didn't end the way that we wanted it to end, I did think, well, maybe that's not that interesting as a book. So... I just had to sort of take notes and file them away. So you took notes, you filed them away, and then when the case was re resolved, that's when you approached a publisher or, or, or had yeah. discussions with a publisher. So you, you, you didn't, did you at any point write as you went along, write in parallel with life? No. You wrote all after it all was resolved. Yeah, I mean, I would sort of have things like in the back of my mind, like, oh, this will make a really good chapter or I could, you know, this will make a little good section about this thing that happened in court today. And I would go home and sometimes write out my notes just so that because I knew that I probably wouldn't be coming to them for some months later. And, you know, I can read my own handwriting, but there are times when I look at it and think, what on earth is that, you know? <laughs> um, so occasionally I wrote things up particularly with court stuff, because, you know, the judge would say something or our lawyers would say something. And I just wanted to remember it just so that I had it there for when I did need it. But I didn't really sit down and think about the form and structure of the book until it was all over. Um, and when I did, um, I, I have an agent who is um, Tara Wynn at Curtis Brown. And I wrote an outline, um, which was really sort of a couple of pages of what different chapters would be. Um, at what I thought that would be um, at the time and a sort of a sample introduction. And that's what I presented to her, which she presented to my publisher as well. But by that point, um, uh, the perpetrator in our case had been sentenced to prison. Um, uh, we, we obviously, a couple of months before that, we knew um, that there was a guilty charge, but um, I just wanted to wait and see what that, prison sentence was, I, I didn't want it to be anticlimactic. I just um, just thought it sort of, it impacted on the book. So I really did wait until everything was completely wrapped up before I pitched it to a publisher, but it was pretty soon after that that I did. And I just want to be clear to listeners that the fact that the perpetrator was um, sentenced is not a spoiler. I mean, this is what happened no. in real life. And it also opens with that. The, the and, and even though you know what happens in the end, 
it is such an incredible journey and an incredible read that unfolds. So with that, though, with the fiction writer, they're often asked, you know, are you a plotter or a pantser or do you know what's going to happen? But inherently, when you write memoir, you know what's going to happen. And yet you still need to structure the order in which you tell stuff because you are also telling stuff that happened to you a long time ago, like when you were 13, 14. So how did you plan that? How did you decide the order in which you are going to write what happened? Well, I looked at, I mean, once, you know, once a publisher, once Penguin had agreed to publish my book and it was going to be a real thing, um, I read a lot of memoirs, not necessarily true crime memoirs. Some were older memoirs. Some were things that had just been released there and then. Um, So I read a lot of memoirs. I didn't really read them for the story that was being told. I read them for the structure. And the ones that appealed to me most were the ones that had a non-linear structure. Ones that begin with, you know, my grandmother was born on this day. You're like, oh, my God, you know. I just, I, I thought, when do we get to the story, you know? And and I looked at some true crime um, television documentaries and series to see how they were structured as well. I spent a lot of time thinking about the structure because I knew the story. I just wanted to work out what was the most compelling structure. And I thought, in our case, you know, it's one of those things, it might sound kind of silly, but I thought, look, you know, when publicity comes out for the book, or, you know, what's written, the blurb on the back of the book, it will kind of indicate what happened in the story. So people will approach the book kind of knowing um, what what happens. You know, if someone reads this podcast and then buys the book, obviously, sorry, listens to this podcast, obviously they will. And I think that's just the nature of publishing. You know quite a bit about a book before you come to it. And so for that reason, I thought, well... I'm not trying to write some sort of Agatha Christie mystery and sort of lead people along page by page. I thought I would kind of give away the result at the beginning and then basically go backwards and forwards to how we sort of got to that position. And to structure it, I did it in a very old fashioned way. I had post-it notes on a, on a, on a, on a pin board, um, one for each chapter. And I literally used them like a jigsaw puzzle and then I would place them, what I thought was the order of different sort of stories. And then pretty early on, I had a pretty good sense of what that structure was. And it changed a little bit in the writing process, but but not a lot. But it was really that kind of idea of, well, what memoirs appeal to me? And then I had to think, why did I think this book was so much more interesting than this book? And inevitably, it was that sort of non-linear structure. It's it's confronting enough to write about yourself, <laughs> about regular things, um, but you're, you were writing about something that was deeply personal and obviously very traumatic. Um, at any point did you go, am I going too far? Am I actually revealing too much about myself? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> A few times. I mean, I thought, look, you know, there was different you know, you sort of set out to to write these things, which are very personal. And there was a part of me that thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't write about this or maybe I shouldn't write about that. And I realised it was stopping me from actually getting the words on the page, worrying about how, how I was going to approach it or how honest I was going to be. 
And I thought, well, why don't I just put it all out there? Um, you know, I'm not, it's not a live blog that people are reading. I can just put it all on the page and then work out what I'm comfortable with when I see it on the page. And inevitably, as it was on the page and as you're sort of reading sort of drafts of chapters or sections back, you get very comfortable with the information that's there. And there was really only one or two things that I did really think hard about whether it was the right thing to do or not. And one of my closest friends is a psychiatrist, um, Dr. John Lampotang, who um, has been a friend of mine since we were teenagers. And um, because he's a friend, but also because of his professional job as a psychiatrist, um, he read early chapters um, as a sort of a working process. I would write them and send them to him. Um, because there are some things in the book about mental health and I didn't want to get those wrong. And at one point he said to me, uh, you know, there's, there's also a big section in the book about my substance use or substance abuse. And he said, oh, are you sure you want to write about this? And in him sort of questioning me, it did force me to say, well, why am I, am I just putting it out there just because it's, I don't know, fun to read about or whatever. And my view was, well, this happened to me and this has happened to a lot of other victims of child sexual abuse. Um, it's quite common that victims have drug or alcohol or mental health problems. And so I thought in the context of what I was writing about, it was important. So the process of having someone like Don uh, read early chapters really kind of forced me to think, why is this in here? Um, because I would have to explain to him why I was doing it. And in the explaining to him, you know, I would be on the phone to him and I'd be writing it down. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good reason for why I'm writing about this and, and sort of put that into the book. Uh, so that really, you know, it, it, it was an interesting process because in my previous books, I didn't give them to anybody to read. Um, I didn't, uh, well, you know, I, 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 I finished everything and gave it to my publisher in one go. This one was a little bit different in that I did have a few people reading things for their professional advice or their professional opinion. And um, it, it's difficult because sometimes they say things to you and you think, oh, no, you're wrong. Or, you know, you just don't want to do the work that they tell you that you should do to make a particular section better. But in some instances, it really kind of did help me to sort of, particularly in those kind of areas where I talk about some really personal things that probably people don't know about me. Um, I, I had to force myself to think about why I was putting them in there. In terms of outcomes, on a practical level, okay, you got an outcome. You got an incredibly well-written book. Great. What was an outcome for you of telling your story? Well, I mean, I mean, one of them was I wanted to. You know, I called the book "Secrets and Lies" because this thing had been a big secret. Um, you know, not very many people knew about it. Um, uh, you know, and as the years and decades went by, um, I became more stressed out about that being a secret. And there was this part of me that people who knew me really well didn't know. Um, and so I was quite keen now that it had sort of been resolved. I mean, uh, you know, once you send someone to or, you know, you're involved in sending someone to prison for something that they did, there's nothing much more that you can do um, to sort of right a wrong. Um, so I thought that was a good time to be kind of unburdening myself from that secret. I also, you know, I, I read quite a few, you know, when I was doing that memoir research, I read quite a few um, child sexual abuse memoirs. And often they're not happy stories. 
people don't get believed by the police, their cases don't get investigated, or if they do get investigated, it doesn't go any further. Um, more often than not, it, it, uh, cases like this don't lead to a conviction. Um, you know, I think we got really lucky in that we got a, an amazing detective, an amazing public prosecutor, um, and we got a really, really good result. And I wanted to, I, I'm very clear in the book that I don't think, I'm not trying to say for a minute, if you go and if you're a victim of child sexual abuse and you do this, you will have the same result as me. Um, I realized that there was a bit of luck involved in us getting a conviction. Um, but I did also wanted to let people know that it is possible. Um, it, it does sometimes, everything does go the way for the victims and we got a great result. And I thought that was one reason to do it. And then another, re you know, there's other reason was that, um, you know, I, I, I'm not basing this on anything other than a hunch, but I just don't feel that in our case or in most cases, there's just one or two victims. And so if somebody reads this and comes forward, well, that's, it's been worth it. And, um, you know, the, the, the police in it, the detective in our case, said well if, if you know if someone comes forward and you know will investigate their claims it'll go back to prison you know like they they're very kind of cut and dry about it um so i i wanted to do it for a few different reasons and i think you know i won't know until the, the book is out there but i do hope that it um somebody does read it and even if they're you know uh even if they're not a victim of the same person if they think well look you know maybe i will go to the police I think one of the things, you know, for the last 40 years, there's a big part of you in the back of your mind thinking, should I go to the police about this? Should I finally, you know, if not now, when? And you put it off and off and off. Um, and it's, you know, so it's one of those things where, well, I've done it and it, and it worked. Um, and I think, I just, you know, it, my only advice to anybody else in the same situation was you, you never know what the outcome is going to be. But my experience was that I was taken seriously and it was investigated. Um, and that's really the best that you can hope for, that it's going to be taken seriously. Um, I'm curious to know, because you mentioned that uh, you took copious notes, so you, you were kind of acting the journalist so that you could, even in the book, you say that it kind of enabled you to disassociate yourself with what was going on at the time. And I understand that. And, but when it came to the actual act of writing, because you have to then, you're not note-taking, you're actually really expressing what's really going on in your head and expressing things that have really happened to you and how you felt at the time. It did the act what did the act of writing do in terms of the way you dealt with things the what you thought because as you say you didn't even see uh except for a brief moment you didn't talk to a professional uh, like a psychotherapist mm. or anything much about it so you're really expressing it properly for the first time when you're writing this what did that do to you well you know in a funny way um, before I wrote the book, I had to write a victim impact statement. Um, so the perpetrator in our case, um, just before we were sort of preparing to go to trial, 
decided to plead guilty um, to enough charges that we were confident that the charges and the severity of the charges that he pled guilty to uh, would result in a custodial sentence. So we avoided a trial, but we did have a sentencing hearing. And as part of the sentencing hearing, the victims can, you don't have to, but you can submit a victim impact statement. And, uh, you know, we had about three months to write them because from when he was pleaded guilty to when the sentencing hearing was. Um, and it was three months over summer. It wasn't something I was looking forward to doing. Every time I would try and do it, it would be a lovely day. And I thought, I'm going to the beach today. I'm not going to sit down and write down this statement. And the statement can be anything up to 24 pages in length. And, uh, sorry, 20 pages in length. And I, it was very hard to find information about what you should put in a victim impact statement. You're not given a lot of guidance. Um, but really, it, it is something that a judge does take into consideration when deciding on a sentence. It's how the perpetrator's crimes have impacted on the victims. So you, and it's just for the judge. It's, you know, it's not a public document. So it was something that I thought, okay, well, I need to convey to the judge uh, why we're here, you know, why I decided after 40 years to make finally um, report the matter to the police and what the what, what those crimes or the impact of them was on my life in the intervening years. So it was a very honest and heartfelt document. And I think that was harder to write than the book because it made me really angry. It made me, um, uh, you know, I didn't want to do it, to be honest. I... I, I sort of in the back of my mind, I knew I did have to do it, but I was kind of annoyed that I had to do it in a funny sort of way. And the more I tried to write it, the more I had to really think about some of these things for the, and articulate them for the very first time. And um, it made me really angry. So I would get a paragraph done and shut my laptop and then not look at it for a while. Um, and that process was, I think, one of the hardest processes. And I write a little bit in the book about the process of writing a victim impact statement and delivering that in court. Um, so when it came to writing the book, in a funny kind of way, you know, my victim impact statement is about 5,000 words. Um, the book is 80,000 words. I think in a way the, the, the victim impact statement is like a 5,000 word summary of everything that's in the book, but in a much more linear <laughs> fashion. Um, and I had to deliver it in court. Um, and that was kind of, you know, even though it was a closed court, uh, that was quite a traumatic and difficult um, thing to have to go through. And I think it was just really, you know, I always knew these things and I always, you know, I knew the impact that this had had on me, but I'd never sat down to write a document or to articulate it in that way before from beginning to end and to write it formally, you know, I was writing it for a judge. I wasn't just writing random notes about things. Um, uh, that was the more difficult process or the most difficult process in the writing. Um, I'm, uh, I don't want to make any assumptions. So I'm just going to ask you, was the act of writing, whether the statement or the, the, the longer, much longer book, um, cathartic, healing, therapeutic, any of those beneficial things? It was. I mean, I think the most cathartic thing was successfully bringing this guy to justice. Um, and I was there in court when he was taken away by the correctional officers, um, you know, 
a different exit from the courtroom to the one I went through. Um, seeing that was pretty amazing. And writing the book was um, quite cathartic. I mean, as well, you know, even though I had this, what I thought was a really great structure for the book, I didn't quite know how I was going to end the book. And I did think, well, I'll, I'll get to that chapter when I get to it. Um, I, I knew I, you know, I had a chapter, which I think I just would end chapter or something like that <laughs> in my structure. Um, because I knew that what I had to write in that one was I had to give readers a sense of, well, how do I feel now about all of this? And um, how I feel about it is I'm, I feel like I achieved something in, in the justice process. I feel like I achieved something in the writing of the book. And um, I feel like a line has been put under the case. Um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, if you if you make a complaint against somebody and that person gets charged and eventually gets a custodial sentence, there's nothing more that you can do. So in a way you are forced to, you better be okay with this or you better feel better about this because there's nothing more that can be done to sort of right a wrong. And, and I did feel that way. I felt, well, we've done, we set out what we, you know, we achieved what we wanted to, to achieve. And um, I, 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 I feel really good about that. I mean, it's hard to articulate other than to say, you know, I feel like a weight has been lifted mm. from my shoulders because I do feel like this is no longer a secret that I have to keep a secret. In a way, I could have gone through the justice process and not written a book and no one would have ever have known. You know, when you're a victim of child sexual abuse, your name is suppressed by the court. So it's never going to be public unless I choose to make it public. Writing the book has made it public. Um, I mean, I could have gone through, the, as I said, the whole thing and just kind of it could have been this personally the same kind of secret that it was. But I think in going through the justice process, I realised I needed to sort of be public about it as well and then that would be the most final that it could be. So you've now written this incredibly powerful and um, extremely well-written memoir what's next because are you going to go back to writing about etiquette or are you going to Helen Garner yourself <laughs> well <laughs> um I look I you know I I left my job after 15 years at the Australian earlier this year um I'm I'm doing some freelance writing some of it is the sorts of things that I used to write about I I don't, you know, it's really hard because I don't know what's next. I don't, I don't have an idea. Um, I would like, you know, I mean, I, I'm still interested in the things that I used to write about. I'm not going to write another book on manners. I do kind of, you know, the other kind of thing about me sort of switching gears and writing a completely different type of book than what people might have expected from me mm. is that when you're, a, when you're a journalist, particularly when you're a print journalist and you're known for something, you get sort of typecast in that role. And so if you're a crime journalist or you're a sport journalist or whatever, people think that's all you can do. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes when you've been doing it for a long time, you, you build up this knowledge and you build up this sort of expertise that it's not that you can't do anything, but people rely on you to be that person who knows that industry back to front and inside out. 
And I know from experience with other writers and so on, when they say, look, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to write true crime or I want to write investigative pieces or whatever. The response you get from editors is, well, just go and do it. You know, no one is going to say to you, well, here's a story. We want you to investigate this and write it. You have to prove that you can do it. And you prove that you can do it by doing it. And and sometimes that means you still have to do your day job. You know, if you're the sport writer who wants to write true crime, we're not going to take you off sport. It's something you're going to have to do in your spare time. So I thought in a way, one of the other reasons for writing this book was, you know, to prove personally that I could write a book like that, but also maybe it's a a way to show people that I can do something else. Um, I don't have to just write about fashion and design and so on. Um, So I don't really, you know, I I wish I had a better answer to your question, but I don't really know. But um, uh, look, you know, and despite the fact that at the beginning writing memoir and writing about myself was quite difficult and challenging, once you get into a rhythm of it, it's actually kind of fun um, to to write about yourself, to not have to go out and interview people to um, just to think, well, you know, what happened? You know, I'm writing my story rather than somebody else's story but I don't have another one <laughs> sitting around somewhere waiting to come out. Well, I personally think this is your thing, David. I can't wait to see what you do next. And, you know, it, 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 long form, nonfiction memoir that doesn't necessarily have to be where you are the key person in it, right? I mean, that's 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 something that that Helen Garner does. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, when, when I said I went out and I bought a whole lot of memoirs and it, it was pretty easy to buy a lot of memoirs because there's a lot published. And I think it, it, it I think it's part of the way why true crime stories on television and, and in film are so popular. It's because people like reading true stories or real stories. Um, I mean, I know people like reading fiction as well, but um, you know, it, it is quite true that sometimes truth is a lot stranger than fiction and you can't make these things up. And I think that's probably why people gravitate to those kinds of stories. I mean, I, you know, one, once I started looking for memoirs to read, it was really easy to find a lot more of them. And I, I found them fascinating reading about other people's lives. Mm. Um, all right. We're, we're going to end with what your top three tips are for writing memoir. For somebody who's out there who's thinking of telling their own story, what do what are the sort of things they need to think about or be aware of? I mean, I, I think you need to think about where the story's going and where it ends. So to think of it um, like a, a sort of in a way, think of it like a novel. You know, it's got to have a beginning and a middle and an end. It's got to sort of take the reader on a journey, but it's also got to give them some kind of satisfaction at the end of it. Um, and I think I think being a print journalist teaches you this um, very well is to think about the structure of it. I think when you write newspaper stories or magazine stories, the structure of it's really important because readers are competing for a whole lot of stuff on the page or on the website that you have to give them a reason to read beyond the first sentence and then to read the next sentence and so on. So I think thinking about the structure of it is also really important. And then the other thing I would say is, which I I would say with any kind of writing, is to just do it. Just get the words on the page. And then the best part of writing for me, and the hardest part is getting the words on the page. The best part is when they are on the page. 
and you can decide, oh, no, that doesn't work or that paragraph should belong here or that whole page was just a waste of time. Um, and not be afraid to just kind of write something and even if it's terrible, no one else is going to see it apart from you until you delete it. Brilliant. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for writing this incredibly powerful um, memoir. Thank you, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with David Ma. He's written such an incredibly powerful memoir. Now let's move on to my fun fact this week. Have you ever wondered why Americans say aluminum or aluminum instead of aluminium? Unlike spelling variations like colour with a U and colour without the U or harbour with and without the U and so on, the difference in spelling actually does lead to a difference in pronunciation. So originally it was called aluminum after the French word alumina. But then some scientists thought it should be brought in line with other elements that ended in IUM, such as sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and so that became the international standard. But in the US, the aluminum spelling stuck, and it's now the accepted form in the US and Canada. But for the rest of the world, the standard spelling is with an I, aluminium. So if you find yourself getting cranky at someone saying aluminum, just remember both forms are entirely correct. Aluminium is the standard international spelling, but aluminum is an acceptable alternative. So there you go. Aluminum. No, aluminium. Okay, anyway, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, uh, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I've really enjoyed bringing this episode to you. Do make sure you join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community. There's some awesome conversations going on in there. I'd love to connect with you in there. Otherwise, feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to have a look at what I'm doing in my other creative life, do check out ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.